to say. I'm out here doing everything you suck as cake. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Keep it playing Verda, Verda. Good episode with our friend Molly Morris, CEO of Mango Materials. Did you like her? She was great, John. And so Molly, I was a little intimidated again because she's a scientist. John, you seem to like to bring scientists on the air. But she I was do. amazing and wonderfully personable. Yes, I likes I likes my scientists. I think that she's on to something and I want to encourage everybody to tune into this episode because I believe that what she's doing sounds really complicated and scary, but I felt like on the episode I felt like we broke it down and into some manageable chunks that made it really easy to appreciate what she was trying to do with science. And so what she is trying to do is transform methane into an eco-friendly, affordable plastic. And it's super interesting. She's definitely moving the needle. I learned so much and I've got a whole new vocabulary list in front of me. Biopolyester, persistent plastics. I absolutely love that one. Strategically aligned, extended producer responsibility, infrastructure scale challenge. We are really talking about businesses doing something different and people coming along for the ride. Um, she's burning methane is what she's doing. So she's making this bioplastic. And what's cool about it is she burns methane to make this new plastic. And methane, if you don't know, is super bad for the environment. It is one of the greenhouse gases that is worse than carbon. So the fact that she can take methane out of the air as a part of her manufacturing process is crazy. It's like a double benefit. So let's not give away the uh, let's not give away the secret just yet, Verda. Let's make everybody yeah, tune in and absolutely. listen to it. Let's but, introduce our guest. Yes, Molly Morris, rock star of science. We're very excited to have you on, Verda. I was talking with uh, Molly a few minutes earlier, and I was telling her how much fun it is to do the research behind these podcasts because it really is yeah. a lot of fun to find find out about these people that we're going to have on, on on break some dishes. It's always fun to find out about. Totally. And sorry, I almost missed the call, <laughs> but I'm on, I'm on now. And I was super impressed with your background. And John just keeps inviting these guests that are so smart. <laughs> and I, know. I don't know why he keeps doing that. <laughs> I'm going to start looking for dumb people because yeah, <laughs> art folks are a challenge. Let me tell you. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, super impressed. And you're um, a PhD. You're a PhD engineer, right? Y- yep, that's correct. Gosh, what did you say? Your knowledge is one dimensional. My, my 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 knowledge is very deep. So like you know, you get me out like who, who's playing in the Super Bowl or something. I'm comically challenged when it comes to oh, that. Good. Well, that's okay. <laughs> that's perfectly fine. So I think what's fascinating here is let me just encapsulate what you do, Molly, in a ridiculously simplistic form that I hope doesn't insult you in any way. But you have basically found a way to make a material that's like a polymer. It's basically a biopolymer. I've waited all week to use that word, biopolymer. And the method that you use basically consumes methane. Where, it, where we used to feed these bacteria sugar to create these polymers, you found a way to feed it methane, 
which is like, I think you call it the gift that keeps on giving or the gift of... <laughs> the gift with purchase. The yeah. gift with purchase. That's what it is. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that because it's kind of amazing that you're. it's a double whammy. You know, you're making a, a biopolymer, which basically means it's a... And I also don't want to get us all screwed up here between compostable and biodegradable. And I know a lot of people mix those terms up all the time. There's a lot of confusion around that. But you're you're creating a plastic that can potentially biodegrade while at the same time you've taken methane out of the environment to make it. Yep, exactly. You're you're hired. I guess this podcast is over, Verda. See, I told you it'd be a quick one. Smarter than you look, John. <laughs> so yeah. tell us a little bit about that and how you got into it. Yeah, no, so you're exactly right in what we do. Back when I was getting my PhD, um, we were very interested in biocomposites. So these are materials that could substitute plywood in conventional applications. And how you make biocomposites is you take natural fibers and then you take a, a glue or an adhesive, like a matrix material, and you smoosh it together to make a plywood substitute. So you can use lots of different types of fibers for those biocomposites, like hemp or flax or jute. And then you can use different types of polymers for the matrix part. So um, we did a lot of work on cellulose acetate-based ones, soybean oil-based ones, and became very interested in this class of naturally occurring biopolyesters called PHAs, polyhydroxyalkanoids. This is a family. There's lots of different types. As you said, traditionally, you take sugar, feed sugar to bacteria to make PHA. And it's great because they have wide-ranging biodegradability properties. So, um, And they're actually produced at very small levels in most living things on planet Earth. So um, the way they've been industrialized is, is from sugar. But what we realized is the ability to make this type of polymer is widespread in nature. So instead of using sugar, what if we use methane? So this was during my PhD. It was um, out of a lab at Stanford. So there's many people who worked on this. And to fast forward many years, like, yes, you can use methane. We use a type of bacteria called a methanotroph. And um, it's very similar to us. Like if we eat a lot of sugar or pizza or chocolate, we'll get very fat. And oh, I thought you were going to say we were going to produce a lot of methane. <laughs> Well, maybe that too. That would be embarrassing. (laughs) But so these bacteria, um, similar to us, if they eat a lot of carbon, instead of getting fat like humans get fat cells, the bacteria accumulate this biopolymer inside their cell walls, which we then harvest and then use. The difference is instead of eating pizza to a human, we're feeding methane to a methanotroph. Um, Similarly, like you could have sugar to a different type of organism to produce the same polymer. So we've been, we're really focused on biodegradability, the challenge of plastics in the ocean. I know you have a lot of other podcasts looking at that problem. That's also really what motivates us. It's one of John's favorite topics. I'm like, oh, there's a theme. And we are, yes. Um, and I love your one term, persistent plastics. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. So we use persistent. We also use polluting plastics. So I, I like persistent. It's kind of technical. Like that's the problem is that if it does biodegrade, it biodegrades very, very slowly. It's persistent. But I guess in an activism type standpoint, especially in Europe, persistent can have a different connotation. So sometimes we use polluting, but same thing. So we're really focused and passionate about the the problem of 
materials if they're improperly disposed of in the oceans, in the waterways. So making sure we can use this material as a substitute for conventional plastics, but if they're improperly disposed of, they don't become a threat to our environment. That's our number one passion. However, the way we make this material is that methane that we feed the bacteria. We're currently using methane emissions from a wastewater treatment plant. So this is a very potent greenhouse gas. There's not a lot of things you can do with it. You can use it for heating. You can use it for electricity production, but it's not super valuable. But if you upgrade it to a polymer, that makes it very valuable. So that's what we we sort of joke is our, our gift with purchase is this climate change aspect of our technology, which we're very proud of um, and very excited to scale up. Um, but we're like, our main love is the oceans. Mm. Yeah, I love when someone's passion can be put with career and, uh, well, you started a whole company and how it all can, can come together with activism and saving the planet and all that. It's That's really exciting to me. I read on an online interview that you were inspired from consulting for a venture capitalist. I find that intriguing. I've worked for a few venture capitalists in the past, and I think it's interesting to hear some VCs really looking at in investing in not just for profit, but for, for the better good of society. And I think that's happening more and more. I'm, I'm not sure if that's your story, but I, I am interested in how you found your passion and how yeah, how VCs so helped you with that. When I found my passion, it was a little bit before all the impact investing and all the green tech and, and things like that, 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 that are very much a part of my life now. Like a lot of our investors are very into that and, and philosophically and strategically aligned is perfect. But actually what motivated me is I was this like nerdy engineer, right? Like all about numbers, all about like chasing the electrons through, through, through a system or the, like the molecules of the PHA where we're like, where does it go? If it gets broken down, how do we know that it's completely biodegradable? Like that was my expertise and like, what I love to talk about. But so when I was consulting, I, I was like a, a nerdy person doing technical diligence. That, that's what I was hired to do. But what really motivated me is I saw all these people, these entrepreneurs come in and pitch for money. And I, I even went to Stanford, which is like a huge, like there's tons of like computer science type people, right? Who start their companies there. But I was in civil engineering and that's not, you know, it's not like you're starting Facebook after getting a PhD in civil engineering. <laughs> So what happened is when I was consulting, I saw these people starting these companies. I'm like, wait a second, like they, they can, if they can start a company, why can't I? Like I was always trained like, oh, you're the technical person, you do the technical stuff. And while there is, I think a lot of truth to that, especially now that I've learned so much in business, like in terms of on the ground training, really at the time when I saw these other people, I'm like, they can start a company. Why can't I? <laughs> so that's where the motivation came from. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> talk about biodegradability for a minute because you know in a couple i don't know if you know marcus erickson from five gyres yes we're gonna we're gonna have him on in a couple oh, weeks great yeah sorry verda more smart people <laughs> yes but, but he's in the midst of doing some research where he's buried 20 products that are supposed to be biodegradable under his friend's yacht <laughs> and he's buried 20 in his backyard he, he probably has some of our material, actually. I wonder. I wonder and I've definitely given him stuff of ours. So I wonder if we're one of the 20. I don't know. 
I don't have to check. I have to check. So talk to us a little bit about the biodegradability of your of your polymer. Is it seriously falling apart? And how long does it take? Yeah, this is like talking about biodegradability is the love of my life. Um, it's just, it's really confusing to a lot of people as well. So if something's biodegradable, that's a, a verb to describe what happens to a material. So it means that bacteria, microorganisms, fungi, something is consuming the material and breaking it down. So most pe- most things are biodegradable to some extent. The question is just how quickly and how much. So yeah, like polyethylene, maybe it's going to biodegrade, I don't know, 1% in 400 years. That's still biodegradable. And um, But what we're proponents of is rapidly biodegradable so that if you measure all the carbon that's in your material, that carbon should be traced through the system and it shouldn't be in its original form. And not only that, it shouldn't even be broken up into little oligomers. And we're seeing a lot of technologies now that they say like, oh, we're going to add this and we're going to make this material biodegradable. And yes, that's true, but you often end up with little fragments of something in the environment. And I'm, I'm not even talking about microplastics here. I'm talking about little tiny chains of the polymer that you would need like a very specific instrument to detect. And so when something's biodegradable, um, you want it to be fully biodegradable to the and carbon constituents. So if bacteria are to eat that carbon, they'll, they'll use some of that carbon to grow. They'll respire some of that carbon. And then, and some of that could be released as heat, but you should be able to trace all that carbon through. So the end product is normally CO2, carbon dioxide, or CH4, methane, depending on what kind of environment the microorganism lives in. And so it's pretty confusing because there's lots of different types of biodegradation. Something can be like biodegradable is the verb, whereas compost is the environment. So right. a compost, something is biodegradable in a compost facility. Um, and often if that's the case, we'll call it compostable. But um, something can also biodegrade in a landfill or biodegrade in your backyard or biodegrade in the ocean. Um, but what's happened is that word biodegradable also gets confused with bio-based, which is like, where does the carbon in your material come from? So like, um, like I know the Living Ink podcast, like that's a bio-based material. Like where did it come from? Where's the origin of the carbon in it? Which is actually completely not related to biodegradable. So you can use sugar to make something completely persistent or um, polluting, or you can use fossil fuels. You can use petroleum to make something that's completely biodegradable. And so this is really confusing to people because they'll see something marketed like like the Coca-Cola plant bottle, for instance, very cool application. Like it's a very interesting step in the next direction, but that's not biodegradable. It's just a portion of that carbon came from rapidly renewable sources. Well, if it's petroleum based, it's never going to, that petroleum is never going to break down and leave the environment anyway. So it's never going to completely biodegrade. It, It could. So yeah, it just depends on the molecular chain you form it into. So the raw material from petroleum, you can use to form in like through different sorts of chemical processes, you can make it into something that will be prone to enzymatic attack by microorganisms. So you can use petroleum to make something. Wow. I'm going to remember oh. that enzymatic attack. Yeah, that, that's you, that's, that's okay. you guys are losing me. Oh my God. I know that I was just talking, I'm part of this group climate reality project and where we target policy here and there. And there's a plant that's converting from oil, 
a shell. It's not shell, but it's that's been around forever. Uh, converting to a bio-based fuel, which is also it turns out not good for the environment just because it's comes from palm oil or corn oil or whatever it's and it's it's fascinating but but i have to really focus the thread it's complex stuff it's, oh it's it it's is so complex and there's so many unfortunate substitutions right like you know even like let's go back to the sugar to pha example which is an um, we do methane to PHA, but there's others that argue like, oh my gosh, if we're to replace all the world's plastics with PHA and we're doing sugar to PHA, how much agricultural land are we going to need? What does that mean for biodiversity? What does it mean for water? What does it mean for food, for humans? Like, it's really easy to look at the disposal of plastics and be like, okay, PHA makes sense. But then there's so many different things, not, not just for our technology, but for all of them. There's like no silver bullet and it's so disappointing. Yeah, I, th- I think that when we get into these conversations, we call them feedback loops, right? But there's so many feedback yeah. loops yeah. and you think you're doing something great and then you look at it and realize that you've made a substitution or you've chosen a material that is not when you look into it, is not the right decision. So it's crazy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about mango materials. Now, what you're trying to do is is simple, actually, right? It's to replace some, maybe someday all, of the bad plastic with good plastic. And you're starting with the textile industry. Is that right? Yeah. So we have two main focuses. One, the textile industry. So in that case, we're making pellets. So how you make fibers for apparel is you take pellets, you melt them down and you make fibers. Those fibers get woven or knitted into something that then gets made into a garment. So instead of polluting pellets, we make environmentally friendly biodegradable pellets. So someone else melts them down to make the fiber. Someone else knits and weaves them. um, And someone else makes it into some product that we could buy. But yes, that's one of our very first applications along with beauty packaging. So very different application. Um, I kind of, I like to compare it like spaghetti spaghetti or angel hair pasta to waffles. Like both of them need dough and we provide the perfect dough, whether you're making a waffle or slightly different dough if you're making uh, angel hair pasta. But so for the packaging, that's more like the waffle application. We have a specific pellet again that we give to someone else and they melt it down to make packaging, like wide-mouthed um, jars and caps. Nice. We've all, I mean, we've all heard lots about the fashion industry and fast fashion being so bad, but it is it is hard to put two and two together when I think about throwing out my polyester leotards or whatever, that they won't degrade because <laughs> it's fabric. Thanks for right? the visual, Greta. Thanks for the visual. <laughs> I need like that, John. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Even there is a lot of like, you know, wool and, and cotton and other materials out there, but often polyester or some other elastomeric material is, is in there as well to give it stretch or give it some other characteristic. And that often wrecks havoc on end of life. But, but it's hard because these performance textiles are also amazing, right? Like, um, yeah. yeah. I think we, you know, you hear, you hear, of course, the stories of as you wash these materials yeah. and, and mic- micro pellets break off yeah. and get into the water, you know, and then it ends up in the ocean, yep. right? So um, interesting. So when we spoke with our friends from Boreo, um, who 
are really doing something very similar to what you're doing. Their biggest challenge is scalability. And I'm wondering where you are in that conversation. It's got to be the biggest challenge you face. Yeah. I mean, our biggest challenge has historically been access to capital to build the type of facility we need. So yes, we have a lot of similarities with Bray. And I think we also both have a very similar passion about, about the oceans that we, that we share. But what we do is essentially grow bacteria that make this material. So it's, um, we're probably more similar to a brewery or even a winery than what Boreo does. Um, but yes, being able to scale, we are, however much methane PHA we can produce, that's dependent on how big our tank or tanks are. Um, and then in, in those tanks need to be special tanks to feed methane and oxygen. Our, our bacteria need both. So you need to have methane and oxygen fed to the bacteria and then all this equipment, heavy-duty equipment. So yes, being able to scale to reach that and having the right type of investors is definitely um, not trivial. But right now, having enough volume of material is definitely, definitely something we're all yeah. looking at. Once you get that plant, would the next big hurdle be cost? Because I feel like the issue with plastics now is that the true cost, like say of that polyester leotard or that Coke bottle isn't built in. It's 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 passed on to our future generations yep. because that plastic yep. stays yep. with us so long. Yeah. It, so that's actually, that's one of the big conundrums, right? Is like that leotard that we're competing with was probably like the original polymer backbone was probably produced at a facility that's moving more than a billion pounds of material per year. And we're producing way, way less than that and, and super proud of what we're producing. But being able to compete on cost is directly related to the scale you're producing. So yes, um, and th- but that's actually one of the benefits of methane PHA is you can have large point sources of waste gas and you can have a very large facility that will benefit from economies of scale very similarly to the p- petroleum-based plastics. So that's actually very different than the sugar-based materials and one of our key attributes as we scale. The question is just how to scale and sort of what the journey is to get there. And specifically, if you want to do something like plastic bags or plastic water bottles, those are very slim margin applications. When you buy those products, you're predominantly buying plastic and those materials are highly engineered with perfect properties. So for us, where we're starting is more specialty applications. You could imagine like an eye eye cream that's $300 in a little tiny jar when you buy that eye cream, you're you're not predominantly buying plastic. But if that company can tell a story about their packaging, that's advantageous right. to them. And that allows us to, I wouldn't call it a I don't like the green premium. Like it's covering our it's covering our costs and it is what it costs to produce at this scale. But they're supporting us so we can scale to ultimately get there. But it's quite a journey to get that big, but that is ultimately our dream to get there. Yeah, also, yeah, that's as she's talking, Verda. I'm, you know, I always, I always try to prod Verda to bring us, bring us back, bring us back into the design <laughs> industry. And I'm thinking about, you know, Verda. Imagine how amazing it would be to have a textile, you know, in the industry. Are the textiles that you're working with, Molly? Are they wearable textiles, or are you yeah. talking to? Yeah, so it's wear- it's a replacement for conventional polyester. So, like the for the clothes that we wear. 
um, apparel specifically. So you can have okay. anything from like jackets to dresses to even shoes. Like there's a lot of plastics and polymers and polyester in your shoes. So we're looking at directly those applications. And what's different about our technology is that it is, well, we didn't invent it. PHAs. They've been around for quite a while. It is a new material in the supply chain. So this takes a ton of work to work through there. Like I was talking about the um, the dough for the angel hair pasta or the dough for the waffles earlier. And it's like, imagine having this dough that no one's ever worked with before. You can still use your same equipment, but it melts a little differently and it flows a little differently and you might need to store it a little differently. Like, so it's not, it's not like all of a sudden we need a completely new mold and completely new equipment but it's different. And that can take actually years of education, work through the supply chain. Like, yeah, right now we're realizing that our material, once it's made into a garment, it actually irons differently than other polyesters. And that's a little bit of a thing. And there can be some uh, uh, other unintended consequences that can actually be beneficial as well as you work through this. Like it turns out our material dies at, at a lower temperature. So Um, energy could be saved, we believe, throughout the supply chain. So this could be big numbers of energy savings, ultimately. And we didn't invent this to be a low energy, necessarily to be this, like that to be a selling point, but that could be as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Vert and I have learned a lot lately about something we talk about called embodied carbon. And when you look at, you know, the physical spaces that we inhabit that are designed by this interior design industry that we're a part of, they create a lot of embodied carbon. Imagine, you know, if we're using a polymer that's methane-based. I mean, you're really offsetting some of your embodied carbon here, or I should say reducing it. Yeah, and it really depends where the carbon came from. So if that methane is being vented and now you're sequestering it in a product, that is a huge difference in terms of carbon sequestration. Like actually very, very hard to beat because methane is such a potent greenhouse gas. Often you'll take methane and burn it, like flare it to convert it to CO2. And that's way better than venting methane. But then you're still releasing CO2. So um, yeah, methane is a very, very interesting gas for, I think, a lot of reasons. And the C1 platform, I'm a huge advocate of that. I think that's what the utopian future we should be striving for. I think there's all sorts of things you can do with it. I think as I listen to Molly, John, I think, where design comes in here is, and we've talked about this before, I think scientists are designers in their own right. And uh, as an example, just yesterday, I was working on coming up with some, looking at some case studies around inclusive design. And I was struck by how they all were very out of the box, very, except stuff you hadn't seen before and different. Like there was this kitchen for, multiple disabilities, like a person that was one-handed, you could stick the bread into a clamp and and cut the bread with one hand, or there was a grater embedded into the tabletop. And just, it's, it's a different way of thinking. And it seems like that's, you're trying to apply this, this uh, biopolymer into different way, different applications that have never been done before. And you're willing to take a chance and the risk and, and try something different. And I think that's that's where the design comes in. 
Yeah, yeah, Molly's a designer for sure. And when I hear Molly tell us her story, I'm like, I can't help but, you know, this is where Verda, you and I are, are we we approach things differently, which I think is 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 good. I can't help but think, oh my gosh, imagine if we put Carnegie in touch with Molly or Bernhardt or some or Loom, right, or just Suzanne Tick, and let Molly start working with somebody in the um, in the manufacturing side of things to start making a textile that's you know, a biopolymer base, which I think would be awesome, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And that's also in part why we partner. So we partner with often the end brands. And this kind of goes back to a little bit of a design story. So maybe you would be interested in it. Like we're experts in growing bacteria and taking methane and feeding it to them and getting, you know, I can talk all about like the different pH gas dissolve different methods to dissolve the gas and how you measure the system and blah, 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 blah. Like that's our bread and butter. And people often say like, oh, well, you know, wow, that'd be so cool if you could make like a jacket and it could be climate positive. And yeah, like my PhD wasn't in making shirts. Like it wasn't in making jackets. It wasn't in making fibers. So like we focus on this part of the process. And what we're doing now is partnering with the end brands actually, which often surprise people because really our customer would be the melt processor. Our customer would be the person that takes the material and melts it down to make a fiber or make some jar. And then right. the fiber, you know, goes somewhere, it gets colored or dyed, and then it goes somewhere, it gets treated, and then it goes somewhere, it gets woven, and then it gets into, and then it goes, then it starts to look like something that you would buy, right? It's a huge supply chain. But we're actually partnering with the end brand. Um, we have three partnerships right now, and they're not public yet. But the reason we're doing that is so that they can be the ones to help tell this story. Uh, Uh Like, yeah, I mean, I think you can see where my expertise is. And so like having that, um, that inclusive, approachable story, like, yeah, I can say like, yeah, so we take bad gases and we feed them to bacteria and we make good material. We make good plastic, Um, not bad plastic. You know, I can tell that story, but how do you tell that to the everyday consumer? And what story are you telling? Like, we're looking for others to help with that. I think that's what's exciting about this new green economy is that it's it's different. Yep. You've got different teams and different partnerships. Yeah. People yeah. don't care. They want that story. And if anything, we're seeing it with other generations, earlier and earlier generations, like Gen Z, they care about that. They care about where their material came from in a very different way. Yeah. Well, you are describing a, a pull-through process. So the end user is now telling their suppliers, yes. this is what we want. And then the suppliers are going to find, and that's, I think, the difference today is, and Verda, you and I have talked about this too, but we've talked to people who are now taking control of their supply chain in a way that they've never done in the past. So it used to be, get me that widget for the, I want the least expensive, give me, I got to buy as many of these for as little as possible. That's my, that's my business model. And now- you have educated people that are getting involved and they're saying, we, we, we don't want the cheapest. We, we, you know, we want this supply chain to be responsible and socially responsible at that. Right. So that's, you know, that's what I think that's what gets really exciting when you start to see that the connections are being made because, you know, Molly, you have an amazing story, but if all you do is go around and talk to other scientists about it. Yep. Yep. That, I mean, yeah. that's why things like this are good, right? Like it reminds yeah. you to how to tell the story and 
Yeah, it's yeah. been interesting because things are changing. Like since we incorporated the company until now, or even in the past 10 months with COVID, like there are a lot of people who I think are sitting at home looking in their trash cans and being like, where's this going? <laughs> Brands yeah. Yeah. us being like, you know, we've had everyone in the past couple of months, like crawling out of the woodwork being like, Hey, can we sample your material? And we're like, what's yeah. going on here? And I think that's what I'm joking. It is everyone like yeah. telling us their customers, they're like, their customers are act, act, act asking for it. And I'm like, it's because they're sitting at home looking at their trash can. Well, how many times, I, I don't know about you, Verda, but I've stood in front of my garbage can countless times holding on to something going, I think I just have to throw this away. I don't I, I don't think my recycler is going to take it. Unbelievable. Like disgusted. it's not my fault. I just going in a landfill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I get, I, I get mad at the company that had to package what I had to eat yeah. in that stupid Piece of pack. It's so hard. Like I, there's a local restaurant here that my family is trying trying to support through the pandemic because San Francisco Bay Area has been super strict. Like, but everything comes in plastic packaging. And I like I I know the guy who runs the restaurant, like he doesn't have any other option. And it's just like, I mean, that's like a large percentage what the weeks that we get the food from there, because he only does it like every other week. It's like all my trash. And you know, it just breaks my heart. And I want to benefit him. In a different way, actually, like before the pandemic, I wouldn't support like a business like that. I would go in and I would, you know, buy my food there. I'm very conscious about that kind of thing. But in this case, like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. I was was just going to say, by the way, I'm in the Bay Area too. (laughs) I'm in the East Bay. I think you're in Palo Alto. I'm, I'm actually in the East Bay, right on the Oakland Piedmont border. Oh, nice. I'm over in Orinda. Oh, cool. And John is way on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I wish I, I wish I could show you my window right now. It's snowing. It's oh, wow. Yeah. We're expecting yeah. a river to fall from the sky here. Um, uh, tomorrow, right? A later tonight. Ugh. You're going to get, your mountains are going to get a ton of yeah, snow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Molly, I have, a, I have a social equity, social equity? Yeah. Social equity question to ask you. My, I have a daughter that is a biomedical engineer and some of the stories that she has come home with, uh, because it's a male dominated field. And I'm just curious, you are a, an engineer and, um, also a, are you a CEO of mega materials? CEO. Tell us a little bit. I'm curious to hear what kind of struggles you've had, um, in the industry that you're in. Yeah, you know, um, we could talk for five hours about just this. It's it's been really fascinating, and my perception of it has also changed over the years. I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten more experience, I've seen other things, um, and also looked at even like just how people talk or how you think of different people in authority. Like I, I see it different. It is it is it is definitely different. That's the one thing that I'll say. I think early on, I was like. I have a PhD. These people take me seriously. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Like, I think if you would ask me this many years ago, that's what I would have said. And now I'm like, oh no, there's like little details, like how certain investors, when they hire consultants to do due diligence on us, how that's approached. Um, yeah, I, uh, that happened once where someone said, yeah, like the problem with Molly is that she's just really, really young. Um, like I'm, I'm not really young and they're like, yeah, she just doesn't have that much experience yet. And it's like, I have a PhD and I've been in 10 years of experience. Like I, and like, I have other, most of my friends in who in, in a similar space 
as me are male. So I talk to them about this. They never get those kinds of questions. And like some of them are even younger than me. And so like that's, that definitely can be a thing. In some cases though, it has been surprising. Like we talk with a lot of um, Asian conglomerates that are known to be very gendered. And I've never felt that from any of them. Like they, I don't know if it's like the PhD label type thing or that I'm like the CEO with a PhD. Never, never had an issue with anything like that. And actually never had any, never had any like negative experiences in environments where you might think I would. Like working with the melt processors, this is often very melt dominated. They've been running polyethylene for 40 years doing the same thing. And now we're asking them to switch. No, completely, like, completely like we've been looking for a change. Change is going to look different. You might look a little different because we need to change. Like, cool. Like you're the expert. We got it. Um, it's been more like, yeah, actually, I mean, not to harp on the investment side because I have multiple investors who I like absolutely love and adore, but probably, probably, or not probable. My most negative experiences have been on the investment side. Yeah. Whether it's due diligence or investors, um, like saying certain things about concerned about, um, dedication or focus or management styles or things like that. And I do know my management style is different. And I do know that Mango has a more collaborative culture than a lot of other plastic type companies. Um, I think it's advantageous for us, but I do know it is different because it's not just myself, but also I have two female PhD in engineering co-founders. So I think the three of us really set the dynamic for the company. And I would actually say in some part, it could be how much of it is the PhD in engineering because that's rare as well. And how much of it is the female? I don't know, but I do know it's different. Like, we're detail oriented. We're focused. We can have 15 things up in the air that we're focused on, but get them all done at the same, same time. And I have a board member who said like, oh, it's because you guys are ladies. And I'm like, really? Um, but I, it's something I've been thinking about. She's like, yeah, women get things done. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Definitely can't let it hold us back. I want to know where you came up with the name Mango Materials. Yes. Yeah, so when we were naming the company, um, most of our competitors have very technical biotech sounding names. Like there's lots of ek or X's in their names and we wanted to be something approachable. And so we started thinking like we wanted a, a flower name or a tree name or a fruit name. Mangoes are my favorite fruit, one of my co-founders favorite fruit. And so, yeah, we love mangoes. Like, and you know, like <laughs> it's awesome. Well, what I for us. <laughs> That's great. When I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, Molly must make stuff. She must make a, a mango-based uh, material. No, we have nothing yeah. to do with mango. We just think they're delicious. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you have uh, Ecovative, if yeah. you've heard of Ecovative. Yeah. So they make the packaging out of mushrooms. So, um, you know, it's not entirely beyond thought that you would make a packaging material or something out of mango. Oh, no, right? not at all. I mean, especially at Fibers, there's a lot of fiber companies like... Orange fiber, Pinatex, or grape leather, or like whatever, and they really do do something that touches that. You know, like maybe we use the mango enzyme somehow or something. Like, no, mm-hmm. no, there's no affiliation with the fruit. We just love mangoes, and that often right. like you guys are so nerdy and technical. You just really named your company after your favorite fruit, and yeah, it was, yes, we did. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Huh, so. We don't, we don't really stay really positive, but uh, <laughs> I hate to go down this negative road, but this just this morning I read 
Bloomberg Green every morning. At least I scan it real quick. And this morning, the headline was that the Arctic ice is melting on pace with the worst case climate scenario. Did you read that as well? I I did not see that headline yet. And it just makes me, it just makes me think what's, a little plastic, substituting a little plastic going to do? How can we, why are we here? What What can we do? Or I don't know what my question is exactly, but. Well, you just wanted to bring us down. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, what, one thing that I do is always keep the big picture in focus, right? So yes, we have our little individual decisions and those things matter, whether I, I believe, like whether we um, drive to the corner store or like ride our bike to the corner store. And like those plastics that I, that are used for the packaging for the local restaurant that I want to support. Like I, I actually have this like internal angst about that decision. And overall, I, I want to support the the restaurant. And I, I, these plastics, like they, they you, you might think they're recyclable. They're not going to be recycled. I just put them in the trash can. And so it really hurts my heart. But what I think is of the bigger picture, I want to help this local restaurant be successful. I want to help them make it through the pandemic. And this is part of that cost. But there's all these little micro decisions you make, like how many times you wash your polyester clothing. Maybe you can go, like, if it doesn't smell, don't wash it. Then you don't have less yeah. fiber jetting. There are these little decisions that if everyone makes them can add up and can make a difference. Just like, I believe every vote does count. Same sort of thing. But then I think at this huge level, how do we redesign the plastics industry? And I keep that in my mind. And I just keep thinking, what is the next right step that I can do to help us get there? Because ultimately... We need billions of pounds to really make the difference. And so, yes, if you have your one little like $400 eye makeup cream, maybe that one won't make a difference. But that is like the base of the pyramid that will help you get to the very top where you can really have large spread systematic change. And that's what we really ultimately need. So. I do think, too, it's it's sort of the tip of the iceberg, no pun intended, that once once things get rolling and maybe policy go, comes into place, maybe there are some bans, maybe there are some taxes on plastic, maybe a lot more people wake up to not wanting to use plastic bags or bottles. And it's this whole do- snowball effect, right? And and I'm, I, we can only hope that things will speed up quickly and that you'll be ready with your big plan. Yeah. Yeah. There's something well, like for that, like for instance, for that local restaurant, like you could imagine a world where people really want to benefit their local economy. So maybe they want materials that are made locally. And so there could be a push for that. Like I would pay, there's, there's a certain segment of the population that would pay more for something like that. There's some that for prices, the ultimate thing, but some people will pay more. So how do we leverage those specific technologies to help them scale? I think that's the real question. Hmm. I think it, you know, back to Verta, what you said, it's, it's sort of accountability, right? Just, I, I, I always think back to if we didn't own anything and we just rented everything, then at the end of your term, you give it back to the manufacturer and end of life is their issue. And if it's, if it's their problem, guess what? They're going to be, I think, motivated to figure it out. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I love like extended producer responsibility. That's often the answer. If people are like, if you had a silver bullet, what would it be? And I mean, it's the the same thing that you said, John, it's, it's that. So like, you know, if a material is improperly disposed of and it ends up in the ocean, it's whoever originally produced it, it's their responsibility. Um, I think 
you know, good luck getting that through, but that would be a yeah. game changer. <laughs> I love yeah. that idea. Did you come yeah. up with that, John? And <laughs> uh, no, I can't, you know, first put that in my head. Uh, I have to tell you, Jason McLennan, who's the founder of International Living Futures, I read his first book and he talks about that in his book. And I think it's kind of a fascinating concept, you know, like your air conditioning unit, you know, you should just rent that and give it back when you're done yeah. and let them break it up. Your TV set, your your laptop, all that stuff. Yeah, right? I, try, I try to support that. Yeah, like I think my shirt is from Rent the Runway that I'm wearing right now. So it's like, oh, nice. I, I wear it, I use it quite a bit. And then once it smells bad enough, I send it back <laughs> and someone else, they can clean it and deal with it. But you can imagine wow, there you also go. dealing with the end of, which I think they are, I don't know what they do with it, but at least then they, they'd have the scale, right? Um, if it's like, okay, we're going to take all these fibers and make carpet backing out of them, like it would all be in one place if everyone did that. Scalability is so important. Even when you think about a campaign, I think, uh, Verda, I think back to Dune Ives from The Lonely Whale talking about the Stop Sucking campaign. It wasn't that, it wasn't that straws were proliferating beaches, right? We know that they were clogging up recycling equipment and that they were, you know, a problem, but it was that straws were sort of like the easiest thing to start with. Mm-hmm. And and they were looking to build scale in terms of awareness. Just just like Ryan with Bloom is trying to build scale and he's doing it with the insoles and the soles of of sneakers and shoes. It, it's probably not the end all. It's not the ultimate solution for Bloom, but that's where he's. That's how he's going to achieve his scale, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. We just that all have to do our part. It's all about scale, Verda. Yep. That's what. We, that's that's my takeaway. All right. Today. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the scale, baby. All right. Yeah. Do you real, real one more question, Molly? Do you consider yourself part of that lab-grown industry? Because I was reading prior to um, our talking to Ryan Hunt from Bloom, I was reading about you know this lab-grown movement yes. of, of lab lab-grown synthetic. Yeah, so I do believe we we fit in there philosophically. We're not like like the lab-grown meat or food, for instance, is a huge, especially something where you're replacing an animal product. To be able to say it's lab-grown is a huge advantage. For us, yes, I would consider us lab-grown, but really we're fermentation like a brewery. So we're lab-grown like how a brewery would be. So yes, lab-grown or biofabricated is another one that like we are bio-inspired design, for instance. Like there's a lot of things about not using waste of our process that I feel we also um, fit into, but it's not something like I don't think lab-based or lab-grown is like on our website or anything like that. Yeah, it's probably not an advantage for you in this case. It's not like it's it's not like we're taking polymers from some living, breathing organism, exactly. and you're offering an alternative. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, anything we didn't ask that you want to say or add? Um, Did we miss anything? No. I mean, I guess it's the other. We're pretty damn good. Yeah. So I guess yeah. the, just the other thing I would mention: we talked a little bit about like female founders and things like that. The other thing is these industries really, really hard to change. And people often think that, oh, like you're a startup company in Silicon Valley, like money must be so easy. You have this big groundbreaking idea. 
no, it's really hard. And the reason it's hard is because it's manufacturing and it's, and it's an infrastructure scale challenge. So we're just coming out of the like startup, the startup phase where you're like trying to figure it out and you're just so desperate to get to the next scale. We're, we're beyond that now, but it has been quite a journey and it's really hard. And we need a lot of different solutions to all these problems, whether it's like lab grown meat or leather or um, different fibers or different recycling technologies. There's so many different things we need. But unlike like an iPhone app or something like that, it's not get rich really quick. And so that just makes it very challenging for the entrepreneur, the team, the company, and the investors that support them. So it takes it takes a whole ecosystem in order to elevate these technologies. And I just feel I feel so fortunate at this point that we've gotten to where we are. Because I think we're beyond that. But it's just something I want to call out to who's ever coming up behind. Like it's a journey that you just have to stick with. And some long view thinking. Exactly. Seems. And that's that's where we all have to shift to is, is look, looking at the long view. Yep. And that's something I think of even personally in terms of how I design my life. Like um, some company, some startup companies are a 50 yard dash and that's great for them. This is not a 50 yard dash. This is an ultra marathon we're running and like we're at a six mile pace. So we're doing pretty well, but it's still like an ultra marathon. Hey, I love how we came full circle back to running. Yeah, right back to it. Right back to one of those uh, Ironman competitions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Were you, were you an activist? Uh, have you always been an activist, or is it? Have you sort of transitioned into it? Um, I probably always been like this. Like, I think my second grade class had a recycling activist come and speak to them. And so that got me really into recycling and compostability when I would, like, I built my own compost pile when I was like eight or something. Um, I would go in and I'd like go through the trash when my, when my parents had like friends over and I'd come out with an aluminum can and I'd go into the dining room and be like, who put this in the trash? Um, So yeah, that was me at like eight. And then when I was a little older, I think in like fourth grade, I went on this field trip to the Monterey Bay Aquarium where I learned about like plastics in the ocean that like exploded in my mind and got me passionate about this. So, um, yeah. And even like, I've gone back and seen like essays I wrote in, in high school about <laughs> recycling and plastic. So like this, like I've always been obsessed with this problem. It's my lifelong. The seed is there. Yeah. yeah. Um, the activism awesome. part is I see a, a little bit different, but yeah, this is like the problem I'm going to address professionally. So yes. Mm-hmm. It's great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been great. I think we have to let her go. Yeah. Well, Molly, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing some time with us today. It was fascinating to hear what you're doing and we're cheering for you from the sidelines. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Best yeah. of luck with Mango Materials. Thank you. Yeah. We're, we're going to keep an eye on you. Go get them. It's been great. Keep on. Keep it on. Great. Thank you. Fair, keep it playing